Good morning. Thank you for being here at the Cato Institute to, uh, um, <clears throat> for today's uh, conference uh, that is inspired by the new book uh, from Cato Institute that uh, Neil McCluskey and I are the co-editors of, um, Unprofitable Schooling. Um, we've got a, uh, I was saying to Neil last night that uh, one of the cool things is that when you think about a conference, um, you come kind of make your list of dream uh, participants. Um, and then usually you start inviting them and a lot of them can't make it. Well, this time, pretty much all of our dream team, our dream participants, um, are able to join us here today. And so I think what we're going to have is a great, um, a, a great discussion. Uh, each panel will have uh, two people presenting chapters uh, from the book. Um, it's an edited volume, and then two discussants of people who have written on the topics uh, touched by the, uh, by the book. Um, let me just say a few words about the genesis of the book, because I think it'll help to understand the structure of the book and the structure of the conference today. This uh, book comes out of some discussions that Henry Manny and I had uh, probably over 10 years ago. I was coming off of a somewhat uh, interesting and rambunctious experience on the Dartmouth Board of uh, Trustees. Um, Henry had been, uh, and I've had a number of experiences in higher education. I was on the Dartmouth Board. I was on the board of a for-profit internet um, uh, uh, institution that kind of never got off the ground because of accreditation. Been on the board of a now nonprofit career college. I've taught at state universities. I've taught at non-elite uh, private law schools, right? So I kind of saw the um, uh, universities from a lot of different perspectives. Henry had been around higher ed um, and law school administration for, for many years. I'm going to add some thoughts as well. And so uh, we kind of scanned the horizon. And what we saw was there were a lot of books that continue to come out on things such as curriculum and higher ed, what students should learn, um, how much Shakespeare should they read, um, uh, you know, uh, um, and uh, free speech now is a big issue. But one of the issues that had not really been studied were the questions of governance. Um, who owns the university? How do they run the university? Um, and, uh, um, and are there different ways of doing it? Um, and universities, traditional universities, are sort of odd beasts, right? Uh, they're uh, probably the best analogy um, uh, has been analogized to a, a Yugoslavian uh, employee-owned uh, collective, right? We basically have the employees of the company, the faculty, are the ones who also run the company, uh, which may be the optimal way of doing it, but it's not obvious, uh, and it's a very unusual structure if you compare it to the way uh, um, companies operate and firms operate in a lot of other areas of the, the economy. Um, and so what we were particularly interested in, what Henry was particularly interested in, was the historical track where this emerged, right? And he had written a couple articles where he looked back at the uh, history of higher ed. Uh, early colleges were um, often they were religiously affiliated uh, with a religious mission, or they were for-profit, often uh, career colleges. Um, and we saw this evolution of um, employee-owned firms uh, through the 19th century, and that's become the norm now in the 20th century. At the same time, we see a variety of governance um, and uh, firm structures uh, in the market for higher education. We see uh, nonprofits. We see state universities. We see for-profit colleges. Um, and, uh, and one of the things we wondered is, is, is there a reason why we see that, why we see this variety of, uh, of perspectives and variety of structures uh, in the higher ed um, market? And this took on a particularly interesting and heightened um, 
uh, interest of ours during the Obama administration, where the Obama administration sort of either explicitly or implicitly had to some extent a pretty clear um, view of this, uh, which is they were very skeptical uh, of for-profit education, um, passed a lot of new regulations, a lot of enforcement actions. Um, there was a lot of rhetoric uh, from, uh, from the administration as well as state uh, AG, uh, attorneys general as well that for-profit education was a bit of a oxymoron or a misnomer, right? That there was an inherent uh, conflict of interest. And so there was a lot of hostility, a lot of regulation. At the same time, there was a heightened effort to kind of prop up and subsidize the traditional sector uh, through uh, increased financial aid, uh, increased uh, uh, federal uh, funding, um, as well as things like, um, you know, uh, free um, community college uh, for everybody. Um, and so what we saw was essentially a conscious decision to put weight on the scale in favor of some governance structures, um, namely nonprofit type structures or, or, or state-run structures as opposed to for-profit uh, um, companies. And so uh, Henry and I set out we were going to write a book uh, for various reasons. That book never got, uh, got written. Um, and instead, a few years ago through the uh, Law and Economics Center, we hosted a conference uh, and I essentially um, solicited papers um, and a lot of the papers that uh, in the in the book basically track many of the ideas, um, and I basically asked people who knew something about uh, these various topics to write on it. The structure of the book then has basically three parts, which is kind of how the structure of today's loosely how uh, today's uh, program is going to work. The first part of the book is basically the history of higher education um, in the United States, which is um, uh, this uh, you know sort of looking at the speculation of what did. Um, higher ed looked like uh, prior to widespread uh, government intervention through the Marill Act and other sorts of um, sorts of interventions such as that. The second uh, part of the book is sort of where are we now, right? What is uh, higher ed like today? Um, and there's sort of a now cliched expression uh, that sort of captures the moment, uh, which is something that can't go on forever won't. Uh, there's a, even for those who are champions of higher education, there's a, uh, there's a sense that something's got to give, uh, that increasing cost uh, without any evident increase in quality um, is creating great challenges to the higher education system. The value proposition of higher education, uh, student loans issues, all these sorts of uh, questions have come to the forefront um, and have generated a lot of proposals, uh, you know, including you know, forgiveness of student loans, free college education, uh, uh, and the like. The third part of the book then <clears throat> turns to a different way of thinking about this, rather than the way we've thought about it, which is more and more regulation, right, more and more dictates. The third part of the book um, uh, aims to think about how could, uh, what are the, what's the potential for using competition and consumer choice to bring reform to the higher ed sector? Uh, capitalism and market competition um, have, you know, brought incredible benefits um, and abundance to uh, to to in across all sorts of different uh, different markets. Um, but in higher ed, there are a lot of um, restrictions on competition. Uh, there's a lot of restrictions on entry. There's a lot of restrictions on innovation. And so, um, and uh, as we said, there was a period in which there were a lot of restrictions and sort of weight on the scale in terms of what uh, business form or what uh, structure um, institutions should have and what the government was uh, pushing in. And so the third part of the book looks at a lot of these questions, which is how is higher ed performing? Um, is there room for a variety of governance structures within the higher ed system, um, and you know what are what are the challenges 
to what extent, for example, um, are the challenges in things like student loan defaults or outcomes in higher education really a function of the inputs of the student quality, for example, and the limits of uh, which, uh, which, what students bring to the table, um, as opposed to actually measuring um, what higher education is actually producing. And so we have some papers, for example, that creates the uh, apples to apples comparison of com community colleges with for-profit institutions, kind of controlling for student quality, and then thinking about what kind of uh, outputs that we actually see. So that's the logic of the, the, of the, uh, of, of the book. Uh, and what we hope to prompt uh, discussion of are two things, which is first, greater thought about the importance of governance um, and ownership structures in higher education. Um, and uh, uh, second, um, relatedly, how can we use competition and consumer choice, perhaps, as a way of, um, of uh, reforming higher education? And what are the barriers we see today in terms of competition and consumer choice being an instrument for driving higher quality and also driving down costs in the way it has in all other sectors of the, uh, of, of the economy? Um, so with that background in mind, I want to uh, uh, first thank the, uh, the, the Cato Institute for uh, hosting us today and thank the Cato Institute uh, for publishing the, uh, the book. Um, uh, and, uh, and it was really, um, although I'm uh, introducing it today, it was really Neil McCluskey who was the one who took the laboring oar of rounding up all of these, um, uh, all these authors um, and uh, getting, up to getting the papers together and getting the book out the door. Um, you may ask then, given what I said, why did, um, uh, Neil actually asked me, should we dedicate the book to Henry Manny? And I said, I would dedicate it to Henry Manny, except that I had just turned in a manuscript for another book that I dedicated to Henry Manny. Um, and I thought it might look a little obsessive uh, if I uh, dedicated two books in a row to Henry Manny, considering that Henry had passed away sometime uh, right before that. But Henry's uh, spirit, in many ways, is the animating um, aspect of this book. And of course, Henry was for many years an adjunct scholar of the, uh, the Cato Institute, um, and a great institution builder, and a great innovator in higher education. Um, so with, uh, with that introduction in mind, um, thank you again for coming. And I think we'll now turn it over to our first, uh, our first panel. All right, thanks. So many books up here. <laughs> Can't even fit them on this uh, counter over here. Okay, so thank you guys for coming to our event today. I'm Corey DeAngelis, an education policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Looks like there's a large number of people in the Hayek Auditorium today. That's great, especially concerning the weather. I live about a half of a mile from here. It took me about 20 minutes to take my Uber over here. There was something going on. but. Uh, but we're here, and um, uh, we have a great panel to start off the morning to wake everybody up. We have four great gentlemen here um, up with me today, so uh, you guys are in for a treat. Uh, so, of course, to set the stage for today's event, we're going to begin with a panel discussing the history of higher education. And, you know, after all, if we're going to fix the ivory tower, we might want to understand a little bit about how and why it was constructed. 
And then we should look at his record of performance. Was there ever a golden age of higher education in the United States? Or is today the golden age of higher education? It'll, it helps us a lot to learn about these things um, to discuss what we should do about the ivory tower going forward. Um, so the panelists will, will cover topics such as the Morrill uh, Land Grant Act, and then also, of course, higher education accreditation and its history. And they might also go over some myths that they think need to be busted regarding the higher education system in America and its history. Uh, the layout's pretty simple. Just like other Cato policy forums, we have 10 minutes per panelist. We're going to start with Richard Vetter. He's going to go 10 minutes. Then we're going to have Josh Hall go for 10 minutes. And we're going to end with Stephen Gavazzi. Um, so 10 minutes each. I talked to them earlier. They said that they would stick to the 10-minute requirement. But if they go you know, to 11 minutes, I won't tackle them off the stage. They'll be safe, trust me. Uh, but then, also, then after that, we're going to go straight into audience Q&A. And we're also going to do Twitter Q&A as well. Kelly Lester is over there. She'll be fielding our Twitter questions. So if you're not here in person, uh, that's OK. You can still ask us questions from Twitter using the hashtag CatoCEF. That stands for Cato Center for Educational Freedom. Again, if you want to ask questions online and you don't want to feel left out because you're not with us in person, it's hashtag Cato CEF. So whenever Kelly's asking questions, that's not coming from Kelly. She works here at Cato. She's a research assistant at the Center for Educational Freedom. Um, so thank you for being here. Uh, those will be questions from the Twitterverse. Uh, but then, so yeah, hopefully we get 30 minutes of great questions from the audience. I think that's oftentimes one of the most uh, important and, and exciting parts of the discussion. But just to set some ground rules for the Q&A, um, rather than trying to eliminate comments, which turn into comments with a question mark at the end, uh, I'm going to allow comments. Just I have a couple of rules on the comments. Just keep them respectful. I mean, you can disagree with other people in the audience. You can disagree with people. Just be respectful about your comment. Um, and then also try to keep all questions and comments short. Do not filibuster. I might have to cut you off. Um, so just some short introductions. First, we're going to start with Richard Vetter. He is a distinguished professor of economics emeritus at Ohio University. He wrote a chapter in the Cato book that Todd Zwicky and Neil McCluskey uh, co-edited. And he wrote a, a, a chapter on the Morrill Land Grant Act and some, some myths that he, 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 he felt needed to be busted regarding the Morrill Land Grant Act. Next, we'll go with uh, Josh Hall. He also wrote a, a chapter in this book about higher education accreditation. He is a professor of economics and chair of the economics department and director of the Center for Free Enterprise at West Virginia University. Then we'll go with John Thielen. He is a professor of higher education and public policy at the University of Kentucky. The first two aren't the only ones that write things. He has a book as well, Going to College in the 60s. Um, so, and all these books you can buy outside, right, right outside the door. And then last but not least, we have Stephen Gavazzi, a professor, uh, Department of Human Science, Sciences at the Ohio State University. And he has another book coming out as well, which is Land-Grant Universities for the Future, Higher Education for the Public Good. So these are all available outside. So without further ado, uh, Richard Vetter, please take it away. Thanks, uh, Corey. Uh, as King Henry VIII told his fourth wife, I'll be brief. Abraham Lincoln is 210 years old today. 
Many think that arguably the most important thing uh, uh, in the accomplishment of the Lincoln administration was the passage of the Morale Act in 1862. One uh, scholar opined, land-grant institutions have transformed the basic nature of American society. Now, cheerleaders for the Morale Act make two big points. I'll use fingers, I call this West Virginia PowerPoint. Use my fingers. Uh, first, higher education in America before 1862 was non-exceptional and elitist, and the Morrell Act unleashed a flurry of new colleges and universities revolutionizing higher education. Second, the emphasis on research and practical learning at the newly emerging land-grant universities spurred large increases in productivity that led to America becoming the world's preeminent economic power in the 20th century. One scholar has said, quote, the act immediately affected the expansion and structure of higher education and eventually the productivity of the American economy, end of quote. I disagree. It's simply not true. First, American higher education was rapidly growing before the Morrell Act was passed, faster indeed than the growth in the first two generations uh, after the passage of that legislation. The research university that evolved after the Civil War grew out of the German model and had nothing to do with the Morrell Act with the pioneering schools predominantly being private institutions funded by such entrepreneurs and philanthropists as Johns Hopkins and John D. Rockefeller, who bankrolled the University of Chicago, uh, or Leland Stanford, whose gift started his school in 1891 without a dollar of federal assistance. As to the legislation in an American economic a predominance. It is a fact that the American GDP passed Britain's to become the largest in at least the Western world before more than a handful of students had even graduated from one of the new land-grant institutions. I compiled a list of what I thought, uh, who I thought were the 30th greatest American innovators, inventors, and entrepreneurs of the period. Uh, between uh, the beginning of American constitutional government and World War I. And of those 30, only three were college graduates, none of, uh, from a land-grant school. Two of them were Eli Whitney and Samuel F. B. Morse, who went to Yale, and the third, J.P. Morgan, went to a German university. Both of those universities founded long before Justin Murrell even uh, was born. Now, it's true that some land-grant universities became highly respectable institutions. Yet the value of all the land dispersed under the original 1862 legislation, 30,000 acres in each state, amounted to less than $10 million, less than one-half of what Rockefeller gave the University of Chicago over his lifetime, and less than a quarter of 1% of a year's national output in the 1860s. Not a dime of regular annual university support came during the first 25 years after the legislation was passed. 
Even if we look at groupings of distinguished, mostly public universities today, most of them are not morale act inspired. Take the Big Ten Athletic Conference, which contains 14 schools, including several prestigious research universities. Of the 14 schools, 10 of them, Indiana, Michigan State, Penn State, Northwestern, Rutgers, and the universities of Iowa, Michigan, Maryland, Minnesota, and Wisconsin were founded well before the Morrill Act was even passed. Looking at the top 25 universities, according to U.S. News and World Report uh, for 2019, a majority were found before the Morrill Act was passed, and most of the post-Morrill Act schools had no tie at all to land-grant uh, legislation, including prestigious schools such as Caltech, Chicago, John Hopkins, Stanford, and Vanderbilt. Speaking of university rankings, a pioneer attempt to rank America's top 10 universities occurred in 1910, some two decades after even the second Morrill Act. And it's interesting that 10 of the 14 schools were private institutions, or in the case of the University of Michigan, a public school predating the Morrill Act. Morrill Act did not dramatically change the most, mostly private dominance of quality higher education. But didn't the Morrill Act jumpstart the creation of public universities and colleges? Not really. I teach at a university founded 58 years before the Morrill Act uh, uh, occurred. Great schools like the University of Michigan, Virginia, North Carolina were all created decades before the Morrill Act was passed. Interestingly, the last two antebellum decades uh, between 1840 and 1860 saw higher education enrollments rise 240 percent, considerably more than the 200 percent in the first two purely post-Morrill Act decades between 1870 and 90. Indeed, I see no signs that the Morrill Act stimulated college attendance. I think a decent case can be made that it had a crowding out effect. The existence of new public uh, universities led to a decline in the creation of private colleges. I would add here that in the period before the Morrill Act, so-called public universities generally received little or no regular government support but had governing boards appointed by state governments. It's, it's interesting, by the way, that the tuition fee at the University of Virginia in 1840, $75, was the same as at Harvard College. I would also note that Harvard's tuition fee uh, was actually slightly lower in 1840 in relation to per capita income in the state of Massachusetts than it is today. Uh, in large part because of the perverse consequences of modern-day federal student financial assistance programs. College attendance is almost the only thing that has become a greater burden to finance over time, largely because of growing governmental involvement, particularly since uh, 1965. What about the claim that the research inspired by the Morrill Act accelerated American economic growth? pushing us to the top nations economically in the late 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, I uh, once uh, compared the largely pre-Morale Act of 1840 to 1880 to the post-Morale period of 1880 to 1920. 
National output rose faster in the earlier pre-morale era, during which Walt Rostow argued America underwent its takeoff. Uh, looking at the total factor of productivity growth, uh, the growth most associated with innovation and entrepreneurship, it was estimated to be greater in the pre-morale era, explaining a majority of per capita output growth in the earlier period, less so later on. Now, moving very quickly, and I'm nearly done, to the modern era, I would further argue that the more modern-day legislation passed in the Morrill Act tradition, such as the Higher Education Act of 1965, has largely failed. In the absence of such aggressive federal and even state government interventions, America still would have uh, uh, had many of the world's top universities and economic growth would have probably been higher than actually experienced. We took resources from a highly productive private sector, disciplined by markets and competition, and gave them through a monopolistic political process to inefficient institutions protected by public subsidies from highly beneficial Schumpeterian creative destruction. Arguably, public support has provided more income and lighter workloads for those in the universities, uh, picking up on Todd's earlier comments a la uh, Henry Manny. Uh, and, but we should view the, the modern support largely as an, uh, modern efforts largely as an extraordinarily costly exercise in academic rent seeking, which is a subject for another day. Thank you. Well, it's always difficult to uh, follow Rich in many ways. Uh, I'm here talking about higher education accreditation, but it's really about uh, a story about federal involvement in higher ed. Um, I was initially a skeptic of these criticisms. I wrote an article arguing for a presumption in favor of the process of voluntary self-regulation in higher education. Uh, I argued in that article that economists' default should be that free individuals left to their own devices will produce uh, the best or efficient uh, regulatory institutions. In, in 2012, I wrote, the institutions that solve problems at the lowest cost uh, cannot be known ahead of time. They must be discovered through trial and error in the marketplace's information revelation process. Um, What's the optimum quality standard for a hotel that wants to call itself a Best Western? The answer, of course, depends on the benefits member hotels receive from the Best Western assurance relative to uh, the, the cost of compliance with these voluntary standards. However, at the urging of Todd, uh, I, I dug further into the history of accreditation and, more importantly, the role of federal government in higher education and as a result of my research, it became apparent that the institutions of accreditation are no longer what I took to be an organic process of self-improvement and quality assurance. Uh, the federal government's role in funding higher education since the GI Bill has severely distorted the information and incentives provided through the current so-called voluntary system of regional accreditation. Uh, 
I'm going to focus mostly on the, the regional accreditors here and, and the history, and, and basically my chapter goes through uh, the history of accreditation. Uh, the earliest forms of what we know now know as accreditation occurred, began at the end of the 19th century. Historically, schools had relied on direct knowledge of uh, specific national preparatory schools or secondary schools in their limited ge geographic era, er, era, area to admit students. As secondary education began to grow, as Golden and Katz have pointed out, um, people began to travel outside their region. This became a real problem for institutions of higher education. How did they know that the students were well prepared enough to succeed at their college or universities? Colleges and universities fumbled along. Some had created their own entrance exams. Some got together in groups and created a common entrance exam, and others uh, got together and began creating a list of approved second secondary or preparatory schools. Uh, as we move on into the early part of the 20th century, students begin transferring schools more, and with lots of different institutions calling themselves colleges or preparatory schools. I used to teach at Beloit College. There was a Beloit Academy, which was basically a, a school for kids who didn't quite have what it took to go to college right away. How do we differentiate between those? These accrediting bodies began to list, uh, create lists of their members, uh, such that you know, if you wanted to go postgraduate education in Germany, they would certi uh, certify you. Okay. Eventually, what evolved was a voluntary system that provided information to consumers, employers, and other colleges and universities. Customers used this information, colleges used this information, and Colleges became a part of the accreditation process because of the value it provided them in the marketplace. So to me, in my reading, the period up to 1940 seemed to be a well-functioning, what accomplishing with the marketplace. There were few reasons for citizens or policymakers to be concerned about cost or quality. Students and families paid for tuition and room and board out of their own funds. Uh, and thus, they had strong incentives to ensure that college was worth what they were paying. Federal and state support of higher education was typically for specific purposes, such as research or the promotion of agricultural or mechanical fields. In that environment, policymakers could easily monitor outcomes. Right? Was the research we funded completed? Did we produce more graduates in agriculture or mechanical fields? Finally, accrediting agencies competed for one another for reasonable ways of differentiation. Competition among agencies kept the information component of accreditation high uh, uh, while not becoming overly burdensome since institutions could change accreditors from becoming too heavy-handed. No single entity had enough influence to directly capture or impede any market forces. As a result, the system largely worked well for those involved. Things would change with the World War II and the GI Bill. Uh, the original GI Bill, its reauthorization in 52 and the Higher Education Act of 65 uh, fundamentally changed higher education in the United States. It changed the scope of federal government activity and it changed the scale. 70% uh, of male higher education enrollment in the post-war period was on the GI Bill. Uh, no longer was the government directly funding uh, institutions, they were, funds were paid directly to institutions based on the enrollment decision of veterans. 
For veterans, the higher education calculation had changed. Since tuition do dollars no longer came out of pocket, the question was no longer whether the degree was worth the cost. Since veterans could only take advantage of the higher education benefit if they enrolled, the question was whether the degree was worth more than the cost of time of going to school. For veterans who are different between going to college and the workforce, free tuition and room and board made going to college or, any, or university, any university, a no-brainer. Not surprisingly, diploma mills popped up. Only Almost immediately, there was uh, the, the GI Bill and the influx of students who were not contemporary, contemporaneously paying for the good they were consuming transformed the higher ed marketplace. When consumers pay out of their pocket uh, for a product, they have an incentive to minimize for on cost given quality. If they don't find a price quality combination they like, they can choose not to spend their dollars on that good or service and instead spend it on something else. When, they, when they're not paying out of their own pocket or can't use the resources on other goods and services, the incentive for cost containment and quality control is lessened. Once such a high percentage of college students were no longer paying the direct cost of their education, consumer discipline could no longer be counted on to push schools towards cost minimization or quality. In the wake of this diploma mill scandal, Congress tied federal funding to schools uh, to being accredited and there come in the regional accreditation uh, agencies. Linking access to federal funds with regional accreditation fundamentally changed the nature of accreditation uh, from a voluntary member organization that provided quality assurance to some form of government-sponsored cartel. Accreditors now had a regional monopoly, while colleges and universities could still drop accreditation as they could in the pre-World War II period, the expansion of student-centered funding through the GI Bill and the Higher Education Act of 1965 meant that dropping accreditation would be competing for students with at least one arm tied behind your back. The lack of competition among accreditors meant that the standards of accreditors stopped responding to feedback from members created by voice and exit. This fundamentally changed accreditation from self-regulation similar to Best Western to form of an indirect form of government regulation. Um, a look at the history of higher education accreditation since World War II shows that accreditation agencies have essentially have to serve two masters, both their members and the federal government. Would accreditation be an issue without student-centered fu federal funding, federal financing of higher education? No. I think the pre-World War II system of higher education worked well in terms of cost containment and quality control because no individual person or entity had too much power. Individual self-interest was harnessed by the competitive forces of entry and exit. Students and families chose institution based on the combination of academics and cost. They were paying with their own funds, funds and so would evaluate the options against potential other uses of those funds. Accreditors wanted to differentiate across types of institutions and only to, not only to benefit themselves, but to benefit their, their students. The expansion of student-centered funding in higher education fundamentally changed higher education in the US. While it allowed more individuals to access <clears throat> excuse me, higher education, it short-circuited the low-cost and decentralized accountability that comes with people spending their own money on goods and services they value. The rise of diploma mills in the wake of the GI Bill is clear evidence <coughs> that people never spend others' money as carefully as they do their own. 
Once the normal accountability system that exists in the marketplace was broken, the federal government's fix by tying the accreditors to be the gatekeepers of federal funding did little to fix the problem. Not only did this cartelize the regional accreditors, it effectively eliminated competition across accreditors. Uh, the current system of higher education, uh, I think, can be called voluntary in name only. Thank you. The toughest speaking engagement I can imagine is to be asked to deliver a eulogy for a late colleague who exaggerated his findings. The best I could say about dear departed David was that he wrote without fear and without research. I like my assignment today because our editors of, of our book, uh, Todd Zawicki and Neil McCloskey and their contributing authors, it's written without fear and with research. Besides, this session is not a burial, but a baptism, a launching of a book that is lively in connecting past and present. The book is long. My time is short. I cannot do justice to all the chapters and the contributions by the contributing authors, so allow me a first cut. Early chapters dealing with the complexity and texture uh, of American higher education in the 19th century, uh, I think are provocative and accurate. Uh, I was especially pleased to see uh, central attention given to uh, resurrecting Daniel Calhoun's monumental work, The Intelligence of a People. Uh, it provides a welcome reminder that uh, such advanced skills as designing and building ships, bridges, and other public works uh, were an American art form often uh, pursued uh, without uh, formal higher education. And Americans uh, acquired basic and advanced literacy and computational skills uh, in a variety of settings, often without certification. The historic degree-granting liberal arts colleges had no monopoly on essential teaching and learning. Now, what's important to note is I think that most serious historians uh, would readily accept the argument presented in this new volume. Uh, in fact, Roger Geiger at Penn State, uh, among others, have long revisited the 19th century. Uh, in addition to looking at the established colleges that have survived to today, they also find a, an interesting array of academies, lyceums, schools, institutes, and seminaries that coexisted uh, with uh, our more traditional chartered colleges. And we find even in the late 19th century, uh, studies done of, let's say, like a city such as Philadelphia, the way that uh, young Americans would navigate a range of educational choices, often transferring. Uh, it's a much more fluid pattern than often has been uh, acknowledged. Now, I've been reading uh, and have been reliant on Richard Vedder's historical approach uh, to the economics of higher education for a long time. He provides, once again, an intriguing interpretation uh, that rescues uh, the moral act uh, from hagiography. And in exposing some of the, the illusions and exaggerations of the moral act, I wish to advance uh, one partial explanation. It's the difference between thoughtful scholarship by serious historians, as distinguished from or contrasted with uh, the celebration books that come with each sesquicentennial, often with a prologue by a university president. 
Uh, and important to note is that resurrection of the Morrill Act uh, represents uh, a shift. For example, in 1981, the University of Maryland launched its strategic plan by publishing a book called The Post-Land-Grant University. But I think in the last 20 or 30 years, there's been this uh, revival uh, and celebration of the land grant without much analysis. My own view is that the Morrill Act did not create or even transform public higher education in the United States. Now, for example, even today, two of my favorite historic land-grant institutions are the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and Cornell. Last time I looked, these are not state universities. They provide a reminder that there was no imperative that Morrill Act funding and programs were exclusive to state universities. Indeed, also, among the original institutions designated as land-grant institutions included Dartmouth in New Hampshire and Transylvania in Kentucky. Uh, in Virginia, it was Blacksburg Seminary that was the anointed institution. In Illinois, some citizen groups in Champaign-Urbana uh, were puzzled and even upset uh, when they received the uh, award of the land-grant university. They thought they had been selected as a site for a new state prison. Better retention rates. <laughs> An important corollary is that categories that we use frequently today, such as public higher education, state institutions, private higher education, independent colleges and universities, nonprofit and for-profit institutions, all these categories uh, were not clear or even defined in the early and mid-19th century. I would argue that the pivotal event in defining the nonprofit category of organizations had nothing to do with higher education. Rather, it came from medicine and health. Uh, it was, for example, uh, the private voluntary associations of the Red Cross and the US Sanitary Commission uh, that were contrasted with uh, the Surgeon General and federal hospitals for caring for uh, Civil War wounded. What happened was that uh, some of the leaders in these nonprofit health organizations uh, were also educational leaders. Notably, it would be Charles Eliot, who would be uh, president of, of Harvard. I'm wary of any claims that the 1862 Morrill Act uh, was necessarily a potent economic engine. The late Lawrence Vesey, one of the truly uh, influential historians of higher education, he observed at a college board symposium several decades ago that it was the use of standard gauge railroad tracks that probably had more to do with the booming American economy of the late 19th century than did the expansion of colleges and universities. Also, what I find to be the turning point for uh, the potency of the land-grant colleges came around 1887, several years after the original legislation. And it was with George Atherton, a political economist at Rutgers, who became president of what was then Pennsylvania State College. What he did was he summoned together uh, the presidents of other land-grant colleges and essentially formed a, a lobbying group. And so what we find in the late 19th century and into the first two decades of the 20th century, succession of legislation uh, that tended to uh, bring new monies into research and development uh, and applied research conducted uh, through the land-grant colleges. Also important to note with that 
uh, second Morrill Act of, of 1890 uh, was the creation and funding of the historically black land-grant colleges, which in my research uh, were among the pioneers in providing uh, extension services, particularly in nutrition uh, and other uh, home economics-related fields. Now, one sign of the, the growing uh, applied appeal of the land-grant colleges uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century was in several states uh, there was what passed what was called the so-called fertilizer law. Uh, the typical condition was that agronomists and chemists at the land-grant college uh, were responsible for ascertaining the content and quality of uh, fertilizer produced by farmers uh, in their state. By the way, uh, it was merely a coincidence that scientific analysis of fertilizer at the colleges coincided with the surge of agriculture students completing the BS degree. <laughs> In addition to looking at the legislation, uh, I draw from macro data and I look at the major economic trends, but I, I am a little wary of them. I, I always like to ground my larger analyses into some careful analyses of individual institutions uh, and their particular budgets. What I find, the closer I look at the uh, land-grant uh, public universities of the late 19th uh, century and the early 20th century, is how low the enrollments were, how minuscule their budgets, uh, uh, very uh, low degree completion rate. They, they really were uh, operating on uh, underinflated uh, tires. Um, and I think that the, the really strong institutions in this category, such as the University of Wisconsin, uh, were, they were strong long before any of the federal legislation. They were uh, the models. And, and interesting, if you go back to a state such as New York, uh, which embraced higher education, uh, even before 1860, New York had uh, about eight chartered degree-granting colleges, and it had 145 institutions that the state uh, documented as being seminaries. And these are a closer equivalent to what we think of as like uh, business schools, scientific schools, agriculture colleges, uh, a range of services uh, that, that did not carry with it uh, the bachelor's degree. A good historian tries to connect past to present. Let me, let me make my concluding remark in this light. About 10 years ago, uh, I was invited to be a member of a small symposium and discussion group sponsored by the Pew Charitable Trust held in Atlanta. And I recall uh, that one of the participants was uh, the commissioner of the Southeastern Conference. He made the earnest, serious case that intercollegiate athletics should be seen as part of the land-grant mission because, after all, it really was an extension service uh, that led to uh, the betterment of life in the entire state. I, I, I've taken that to heart. So we know that originally A&M stood for agriculture and mining. Actually, it, it was really more like A and M&Ms uh, because it stood for agriculture, mining, mechanics, and military. Let us update that. I would propose, in closing, 
that today we need a new operational definition of A&M, I propose athletics and marketing. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. So I get to back cleanup. And I've entitled my talk, my very brief <coughs> remarks, uh, Engagement and Community Well-Being, the Forgotten Component of the Land-Grant Tripartite Mission. And uh, I'm going to be largely talking about the book that Corey had mentioned. Oh, and thank you both Neil and um, Todd for the invitation and the Cato Institute for putting this on, and Corey for agreeing to uh, be a part of this. So um, the remarks that I'm going to be making today coming out of the book are going to be very brief, but I'm going to try to touch on some of the key points. And by the way, I should acknowledge that I could not have done this book without my co-author, uh, Gordon Gee, who's the president of West Virginia University and perhaps uh, one of the most famous presidents um, today. Uh, seven different presidencies over almost 40 years. Um, in fact, I think he is celebrating his anniversary of his 40th uh, at WVU this year. He started when he was 36 years old, which um, is remarkable to be a president at that age. Um, okay, so me, I'm actually land-grant fierce. I have been brought up in the land-grant system. I was actually born in State College, Pennsylvania, when my dad was going through his uh, graduate degree, and it was largely because of the GI Bill, he served in Korea, that he was actually able to go. Um, and I also know that there is some other land-grant fierceness up here today. Um, Josh is at West Virginia University, which is a land-grant, and uh, John is at the University of Kentucky, which is a land-grant, and uh, Richard is actually a product of the land-grant system as well, University of, Ch uh, University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana. Um, what do I mean by land-grant fierce? I say that in the same uh, vein that I talk about any other institution that has a separate and unique identity. So as a for instance, um, Brigham Young is Mormon. We would, we would really urge Brigham Young to be fiercely Mormon. Catholic universities should be more fiercely Catholic and Baptist universities and so on. So land-grant universities, I hold, also should be more land-grant fierce. And yet, unfortunately, one of the difficulties that I see and that we write about in the book is that land-grant universities seem to be want, they, they seem to want to be more like all the other universities. There's this homogenization, unfortunately, that's going on in higher education today where everyone wants to compete at, at, on one level plane and all be the same thing. And I reject that notion. So I want to tell you a little bit about that. So uh, first, we need to really, I think, set the stage. And although some of my uh, predecessors here have talked about the land-grant university, I want to just really quickly whip through the uh, different federal acts to just bring some focus to the tripartite mission of a land-grant university, which is to teach, to do research, and to serve communities. So of course there was the 1862 Land-Grant Morrill Act, which gave us the focus uh, on teaching. And very specifically, we were supposed to be teaching in the, in the actual statute, it says, the industrial classes. And so this was really an attempt by federal statute to get a, a much broader way of accessing education for those who were not white, who were not primarily rural, who, um, primarily urban, and the, who, those who were also not primarily male and wealthy. 
And so this was an attempt by federal legislation to do exactly that. But that was a, that was a teaching mission in 1862. In 1887, and no one has mentioned this, uh, the Hatch Act, Representative Hatch at the time, uh, had passed an act that gave federal monies to states to support empirical work on issues that were facing the communities. And in large part, those were first to set up agricultural stations, or uh, uh, what we called sometimes field or, or experiment stations. But it, it rapidly became research on anything that would benefit the state. So that mission was really about research. And then third, and this is the one that I always get most upset about that no one remembers, which is the Smith-Lever Act of 1914, in which that established what is now known as cooperative extension services. How many people know what I'm talking about when I say cooperative extension services? OK, so some of you do. Um, so this was an idea where we were supposed to take all of our best teaching and all of our best research findings, and we were supposed to disseminate that research to farms and families and communities, creating that third component of the land-grant mission, which was service, or what we now call engagement. So, the main issue at hand, as far as I'm concerned, when we look at the historical perspective of public and land-grant universities and look at where we are today is that it's my contention that public and land-grant universities have forgotten their mission, especially in terms of meeting the needs of communities. So how did we get there? Well, the book was really about going to all of these different university presidents and chancellors, and I ended up interviewing 27 of them who agreed to be interviewed, and asked them questions about the strengths and weaknesses, the opportunities and threats that were facing land-grant universities today, with a specific focus on why was it that we've lost this focus on communities. And so what ended up happening was, through a thematic analysis of this interview data, we ended up seeing seven very distinct categories or themes that developed out of these interviews. And uh, to give uh, credit to these presidents, they actually represented a rather wide swath of opinions about what was going on. But collectively, we were able to put these in terms of dialectics. So as a for instance, and this is the most common theme that you'll find every university president, land-grant or otherwise, talk about. And that's reduced funding, right, because they're all screaming about that. But on the other side, they're also very aware of the need to be increasingly efficient. So they see that as polar ends of a, of a continuum and the dynamic tension that results from that. There's also this really overwhelming emphasis on wanting to be great at research. And, and they recognize that, that that is sometimes diametrically opposed to trying to reward great teaching and, even harder to count, what does it mean when you have great service to the community? So they, they recognize that, uh, that dynamic tension. Also, basic versus applied research. Again, back to the research theme. This idea of uh, conducting brand new innovative research. That, on the one hand, the, the, we, we need basic research. But the land-grant mission was always about applying it. And so the dynamic tension there is, where are you rewarding that most? Also, the insidious nature of rankings. Everyone mentioned that how these national rankings, and, and I think that the pox that was put upon all universities was US News and World Report. Absolutely the worst thing that could have ever happened to universities, because they started chasing those rankings. And, and there's only so many levers you can pull with US News and World Report. And unfortunately, one of the worst uh, 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 things that happened was trying to pull the lever about student excellence. 
So what happened was it was an arms race to try to get the best and brightest students to come. At Ohio State, to just use it as an example, incoming freshman class has a 29.9 ACT average. Four out of every five of those students come from families that are at or above the mean of family income. So we're no longer, as a result of chasing these national rankings, we are no longer serving what we called then the industrial classes. That's a problem. Also, the rural versus urban distinction, related to my previous point, because unfortunately, large numbers of rural students do not do well on ACT scores. And so we've abandoned large segments, over half of the counties in Ohio, have poor representation as a result of this arms race. But the rural and urban distinction is, is, is very much alive in what these presidents were thinking about. Also, the, uh, the desire to be international in focus. This is something that every, every university wants to do, world reach. Um, one president had talked about it as a world grant as opposed to a land grant. Uh, another misuse of the term land grant, I will add. Versus this other dynamic about closer to home impact. And the, again, going back to the original statutes. And then finally, they also mentioned this um, the problem of seeing the value of a college degree versus the increasing numbers of public uh, in individuals saying, maybe it's not worth it anymore. So that was what was in their minds. But what we then did was we went out and intervie interviewed 35 additional thought leaders who were known to be experts in higher educational issues, including Dr. Vetter. And we also had other accreditation leaders. We had elected officials that we talked to, state lawmakers, governing board representatives, think tank affiliates, 35 in all. And what did they say when we presented them with these dynamic tensions? They said, there's no dynamic tension. Here's what you need to do. You need to focus on greater efficiency, period, before you ask us for any more money. Second, we don't really want to know about the research, research excellence until you tell us that you're doing your original job, which is teaching. And by the way, if there's anything left over, serve the community. Do the research on your own time. And to the next point, if you are going to do research, then please make it applicable to the problems of the state. The uh, idea of national rankings, no one believes that they're useful. In fact, the person who wrote my foreword, Peter McGraw, said they're BS. And I don't think there's a, a, a better way of saying it. Um, they don't do any, any good for anyone. So instead, focus on access and affordability. Make sure that you're serving the students that you're supposed to be serving. And be community focused. By the way, all of these thought leaders rejected the whole notion of urban versus rural. They said, if you're focused on community, it doesn't matter if they're in a rural environment or they're in an urban environment. And then finally, in terms of the international versus closer to home, there was, everyone said, just impact closer to home. Worry about international, if and only if, that's something that you can do with, by the way, somebody else's funding, not the state funding all of which becomes the formula for what we then talk about in terms of a greater return on investment for public higher education. So I'm going to end by actually um, quoting uh, Richard Vedder, because uh, he actually had this really great quote, which I think sets up the rest of the conversation that we have. And I'm, I'm, now, I'm now reading from the book. Dr. Vetter stated his belief that land-grant universities, at least in principle, would seem to be well-positioned to win back the favor of the people, especially if any of these institutions of higher learning decided to act like the people's university again. While the electorate clearly has been disenchanted with the elitism of what was quoted as Ivy League-gated communities, end of quote, 
He continued, they may be quite open to the real world values and accomplishments of the engineers, doctors, and farmers that the land-grant institution more typically produces through its educational efforts. Thank you very much, everybody. All right, now the fun part. Uh, we have until 10.45, so right on time. We have 30 minutes. Uh, just in case you weren't here earlier for the rules on the Q&A, uh, just please, please wait to be called on. Um, wait for the microphone so that everybody in the room and, and online can hear the question. Um, and then also announce your name and affiliation. Uh, and then also on the comment thing, you can make comments. Uh, just don't make them too long and be respectful uh, in your comment or question. Uh, so let's take it away right here, uh, Richard, or uh, Todd, <laughs> thanks. Hey, Todd Zawicki, uh, Antonin Scalia Law School and Cato Institute. Um, one of the things I, a common theme it strikes me for all four speakers is um, that uh, land-grant colleges uh, in, in particular had a different mission from, say, the Harvards of the world, right? Uh, but what has evolved over time is that every institution either wants to or is forced to look like Harvard, uh, right? That basically there's what, what's developed is sort of a homogeneous structure of what universities are supposed to do, research and get the top students and, and that sort of thing. Professor uh, Gavazzi, you point to um, U.S. News. I suspect accreditation probably has a lot uh, to, to do with that, right, in terms of creating a one-size-fits-all. But, but one of the things that's absent, it seems, from higher ed is uh, we, we don't have the Walmarts of higher ed, right? Every, every uh, university aspires to be Bloomingdale's, um, and we uh, don't have low-cost um, uh, universities that do sort of practical things um, for uh, people in, in the, the community. Um, and I, it seems that all of you have kind of um, made that point. I just wonder if you have any reflections of uh, sort of where are, the, where are the Walmarts of uh, higher education? You know, there was a time, to start with New York City as an example, there was a time the Walmarts of higher education were perceived to be schools like uh, City University of New York, schools that were the, the school for the common man, the Harvard for the common man. And, the, you know, the immigrant communities that came in, the, particularly in the case of New York, especially the Jewish immigrant community came in, uh, many of them attended schools like that, and, 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 and they seemed to perform rather well. Uh, and w some would argue that the community college movement was an attempt to create colleges for the common man. And uh, the issue to me today is how have these schools fared, and are they, have they strayed from that initial... Uh, ideal, and I think to a very considerable extent they have. If you look at things like graduation rates, uh, job placement, and so forth, uh, th there's a lot of weakness there. And uh, uh, so, that, you know, that's m my thought. This, John, I know John yeah. will say yeah. Jump in. I think that all colleges and universities in the United States aspire to be Harvard in their endowment. 
Uh, I would supplement that actually, I think some of the flagship state universities have positioned themselves to create a model and an aspiration. For example, uh, most of the great, preeminent, uh, highly ranked flagship state universities use a model of a large undergraduate base. Harvard does not. Harvard's undergraduate enrollment uh, is about 5,000. It then has a large constellation of graduate and professional schools, but uh, the undergraduate college, which David Reisman and Christopher Jenks called the University College, uh, I think is distinctive to a relatively small number of private universities. I think that uh, if we were looking for the affordability and access model, I will speak of my home state, California, where I went through third grade through high school uh, from uh, 1955 to 1965 as being the high mark of the uh, no tuition accessibility. But what I wish to note is that even as early as 1967, there were serious doubts as to whether even a prosperous uh, state, uh, education-minded state such as California could sustain that. So I think we keep searching for American hybrids. Now, I'm gonna name a category of institutions that I think warrants recognition in terms of affordability. Those are the, not the most selective, but solid and often rural private liberal arts colleges. They work very hard at keeping tuition down, uh, and I think that they warrant more attention uh, for their role in the higher education landscape. Yeah, hi. Uh, Edward Hutchins from the uh, Heartland Institute. Kind of following up on uh, Todd's question, I want to put it in a larger context. To what extent are land-grant universities even relevant today uh, outside of the fact that they have a student base because of government loan guarantees, they of course have uh, uh, state funding and all, but you see exponential change in uh, the economy. You see the complete mismatch between the uh, training and jobs, you know, the possible careers coming out of universities, right? Um, and so to what extent are they really relevant? You see some of the major tech companies now saying, no, you don't need a college degree. I think Google and Apple recently have uh, uh, said that. Um, it looks like the universities are becoming even less relevant. The only thing is keeping them afloat is in fact the, uh, uh, the, the student loans, some of the things you guys have discussed up, up here. Uh, so what do you see for the future? And especially in, in terms of, for example, Switzerland has something like 70% of their kids go through apprenticeship programs. And some go into universities, but it's a completely different model. It looks like in the next decade or two, sans government funding, the university, as we've described it and looked at historically, just won't exist much anymore. I'll take a shot at, at that, at least in terms of pointing out first and foremost that the term relevancy is actually what most uh, presidents and chancellors try to use if they're not using the term land grant. So, the, and the other word is practical, right? That these are the two things. And, and so I, I do want to give some credit to where credit is due. And one of the things that I've been very excited about is watching what the what APLU, the Association of Public and Land Grant Universities, has done with something called the IEP designation, which IEP stands for Innovation and Economic Prosperity. And I think currently 
after almost 10 years of doing this, there's 60 some, maybe 62 or 63 institutions that have done something that I think is pretty unique, which is they've gone to the business communities of their state and they've actually, because of the way the application process for this designation works, they've had to document how it is that they're actually involved in workforce development, which is different than other designations that have happened. Uh, for instance, the Carnegie designation for an engaged university, that's a self-study. They can say whatever they want to get that. And so there's 300 some universities that say that they're engaged. Now, now maybe that's good, but it's again, contemplation of one's navel as opposed to what happens with the IEP designation where you must document, and there's a, it's a very rigorous process, that you must document that the business community actually finds you relevant to the kinds of things that they're doing. So I, I would at least want to point that, that part out. Yep. I, I have to comment on that. By the way, what you're talking about trendy words, I would like to make, even with my libertarian orientation, I would like to make it a felony for university presidents to use the word sustainability or diversity. <laughs> I'm so sick of those words. That's all we hear about in the universities anymore. Hell with what the students are learning. Are, is it, are we going to uh, lower the temperature of the planet Earth in the year 2150? by one millionth of a degree by putting in solar panels on this building and that, never mind. Uh, there's a lot of stupidity going on in universities, just rank stupidity. And, uh, but I think we are over-invested in universities. I agree with the tenor of your remarks. I think we're over-invested in universities. Uh, when you have these high dropout rates, high levels of underemployment. Uh, and I think we need more creative destruction in higher ed. I, I keep reading, uh, Josh mentioned Beloit College where he taught, Beloit College is in trouble right now. It's a good school. It was a better school when Josh was there, but it's still a pretty good school. <laughs> and, uh, but it's in trouble and you know, they're cutting the pay of the faculty. My God, you never hear that. But uh, they actually cut salaries. Uh, Earlham College, uh, uh, this hippie college up in Massachusetts, Hampshire uh, College, uh, all these schools are going by the wayside. And uh, I, 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 I'm, most people are sad about it. I'm kind of happy about it. I think it's kind of cool. Markets are kind of working in spite of all these government subsidies. The market is, is starting to exercise itself a bit, and that's kind of cool. If I, if I could say, I, you know, I, I think for me the, the most difficult thing in thinking, because change is going to happen, demographics predict that, all sorts of things predict that, is on what margins do they change, right? There's certain things just seem to be inviolable, 120 hours to a diploma. Uh, we have, you know, one of the things that's both great and some, somewhat frustrating about working at a land grant is this vast heterogeneity in what every unit thinks of as being their mission. And are placements in some areas bad? I, I bet they are. I mean, Rich has documented that. Are placements in other areas great? Yeah, I think they are. So you, it's hard to get a sense of like what the, the problem is. We're all maybe under WVU or the Ohio State University, but really getting a sense of like what the university is doing well and what's doing poorly is because you're, you're everything to everybody and you know nothing to everybody. And, and, but, but those inviolable things, 
those 120 credit hours or whatever it might be to degree that maybe, maybe 60 is enough and you can be certified and go on your way. And, and I think that's what people with apprenticeships and other models are really pointing out is, hey, it's not that higher education is bad, it's just you don't need the whole kit and caboodle. I just wanted to say to Rich real quick, uh, Heartland just published a paper on sustainable investments, and one of the bits is that uh, Harvard lost something like three to four billion dollars in its endowment because it, among other things, put its uh, endowment into these trendy things. Yeah, so you'll well, be happy to know that. And that's right. A lot of schools are are uh, saying we you got to have socially desirable investments and so that forth, and I think those schools are uh, in many cases doing a great disservice to the students and their donors because in, rather than trying to maximize the investments and the return to the donors and scholarships for kids and all those things, we, we take on these other missions, which colleges have too many missions. That, why don't they just teach and do research? John? I want to reintroduce myself. I'm not hiding behind the podium. I'm not <laughs> avoiding. I'm going to. I'm the Greek chorus. To keep you guys um, separate. But in, in response to the, the, the projections of, of uh, which categories of institutions are at risk, uh, I would say that my estimate is that the state land grant universities are, by and large, are fairly well positioned. They have heritage. They're fairly large. They have loyal alumni. They also have a statewide presence largely through extension services uh, in every county. Uh, the category of institution that I don't believe we've mentioned that I see as at risk will be the uh, regional comprehensive public universities, uh, oft, often which are in uh, rural areas. Uh, they're, they're not close to major population centers. They don't have uh, the alumni heritage and whatever, and so, um, that is where I think the vulnerability is going to be most pronounced. Yeah, I agree. Over here. Uh, I'm Judith Eaton with the Council for Higher Education Accreditation. Uh, many of the characteristics of land grants that have been discussed thus far, whether you consider them defects or, or benefits of, of land grants, graduation rates, uh, straying away from mission, the, the business model, are characteristics of all the other types of higher education institutions. So my question is, where are we taking this? What is significant here about the land grant that we want to, want to pursue? Or is the land grant a way of talking about the broader higher education enterprise? It, it could be a both and. I think that there are going to be some land grant institutions that will um, because of the leadership, choose to be more of the people's university. And I think that there are others that have been so enamored of other things, including most, I think, significantly research, that they'll, they'll refuse, perhaps until something extraordinary happens to them. So, you know, short of a crisis, I'm not sure that some of those universities will go back to being the people's universities, which will give rise to, I think, opportunities for other universities to be the land grant. Now, whether or not that translates into any sort of state funding uh, that will help them to do that is another question, but I think it's something that legislatively each state should be looking at. And that's another thing, and, and you know, Rich and I exist in a, a very unusual purple state of Ohio, and 
And so there's a whipsawing that sometimes happens politically in terms of uh, accountability and, 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 and what have you. But I, I will remain hopeful that at least in the state of Ohio, we will see that question become more front and center, especially when they talk about any new monies that would be given to higher ed. There was mention of uh, the, the question of the uh, land grant mission uh, being usurped by preoccupation with research. Uh, context on that is uh, Clark Kerr, uh, president of the University of California in the late 1950s and uh, until 1967, in his uh, book, Uses of the University, uh, identified another category of institution. He called the Federal Grant University. And uh, what he identified at that time were about 20 universities, some public, some private, that received about 80 to 85% of federal agency funding. I think the situation that leads to the malaise that, that we've talked about is that um, the aspiration uh, of many institutions to join the ranks of the federal grant universities. And in some ways, there are some benefits to that but there's also crowding at the top. And uh, if, if you're dissatisfied with that, well, uh, federal research is supposed to be self-supporting. And what I think happens at a number of aspiring uh, research universities is, in fact, they use a lot of cross-subsidies uh, from within their own budget that floats uh, a lot of departments and programs that are purported to be bringing in federal grants. Um, to my knowledge, no one has really done a careful analysis of any physics department budgets. Physics is very expensive. Every physics department knows how to spend, few know how to acquire. Um, that's the sustainability I question. Hi, uh, my name is Farzan Illich, and I'm a counter academician. So uh, just uh, Mr. Vedder's uh, point about diversity and inclusion and um, sustainability. I think the problem with that is not that they talk about it, it's that they don't practice it. And if you think that's problematic, that these ideas, uh, you ain't seen nothing yet. We're, the idea of that, that white makes might is sort of obsolete. But so is the whole system of higher education. I'm reading this article, Designing the University of the Future, the New Global Agenda for Higher Education by Dean Watson. And she says the higher educational system has atrophied. So I think that's a very generous uh, 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 remark. It's uh, ossified, retrograde, and obsolete entirely. And the competition we need is to create alternative models. Epistemologically, we are in a deep crisis, the division between thinking and doing is undermining uh, uh, the civilization and uh, the rituals. And this ritual is an extension of that, right? Uh, we have to question all these rituals, uh, positions, you know, the power structure. And I think we need fierce <laughs> uh, uh, diversity and ex inclusion, the problem with inclusion, we don't even really know the definition. How do we include genius 
in the higher educational system. Genius historically has been the most excluded element in, uh, in the world, right? Uh, uh, Salon de refusés, right? In, in, in France, the, the, the most uh, creative artists were systematically excluded. So to rethink the process, and, and at the end, just it's not accidental that uh, some of the most uh, 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 innovative people uh, have been dropouts, right? Stephen Jobs said, I dropped out so I can drop in. <laughs> we need a system of drop in so people can come in and challenge and revitalize. Any responses? Well, the, the, I, I would rather discuss this with you over a drink. <laughs> Actually, <All right. laughs> two or three drinks. Uh, but I, your remarks somehow led me to think of something related to this. Uh, first of all, I'll make two or three very quick comments. One is the distinction between so-called private universities and public universities is mostly kind of false. Harvard University gets far more federal subsidies per student than uh, Bridgewater State University located 12 miles away. And uh, Harvard, the average income, according to the Jetty data, the average income of the undergraduate student attending Harvard College is 500, of the parents, is $500,000 a year. The median is a mere 200,000 a year. And so when we start putting tuition uh, taxes on tuition, which the Congress did last year, I think it had as it should have had as much Democratic support as Republican because they care about the poor and the un, you know the unwashed or whatever whoever you're trying to help, and uh, I think we're going to have some interesting tensions along this line. On the one hand, they talk about free college and uh, you know. Everyone had free college, but on the other hand, we got to attack the Harvards and Yales, and that'll be interesting to see how that works out. Because of Harvard and Yale, everyone in in Congress went to Harvard and Yale, or not everyone. A majority of the presidents, eight of the last ten presidents of the United <coughs> States, and a majority of the Supreme Court had an Ivy League association. So, uh, I, I think we're going to see some tensions along those lines in this era of populism and so forth. I just want to um, say that, like, fundamentally, I think the issue in all this discussion of change and what higher ed needs is so much of the, in the higher education landscape, it's a political question. Uh, what, you know, these, these, to enter John's point, the, the regional universities, those exist in communities. Those communities have state legislators uh, who are, don't want that to happen. There's always the concern about, uh, especially, uh, given uh, concerns about, you know, it, even at WVU, we have entire counties in the state where we have no students enrolled at WVU in a particular year, or maybe over two or three cohorts. Just that three hours is too far away. And so those stories uh, clearly tug at heartstrings uh, and make those difficult decisions hard to make. Um, I will say that our, I think our institutions do pretty good at trying to find ways to to help uh, individuals in the market, you know, who are who might be genius. Uh, I had a student 
who at Beloit College who did our entire math major as a high school student. Uh, and he got through, you know, undergrad two things. He's going to Northwestern for a PhD now. Uh, we find pathways for those students. I think the real debate in higher ed should be that student on the, the margin who's not, either because it's not affordable or it's too long or the curriculum's uh, not providing a way that's accessible given their work or family. Um, you know, that's really where I'm most concerned about. And I don't think we're doing a good job uh, at getting that student because in WVU's case, we're just frankly too big. Hello, uh, James Hummel, uh, representing OSU alumni. OH. I-O. <laughs> um, so um, I actually went to OSU Mansfield. Um, yeah, and um, uh, I was wondering, Dr. Gavazzi, if um, you think that uh, relevancy um, at some of the branch campuses um, is a problem uh, with the lack of um, uh, classes and course uh, direction that are offered and whether or not um, some of the push towards distant learning could um, uh, really help um, those institutions become a lot more relevant to many more people. So first of all, let me say, look at you. Look how successful you are coming off of OSU Mansfield campus, right? Yeah. And, and I, I, I'm really, really happy, I mean, at a number of different levels um, for your bringing this up because I had earlier really criticized Ohio State in terms of what happens on the Columbus campus with four out of every five students coming in and, and saying that they're not serving the industrial classes. But uh, on we, uh, Ohio State has six campuses. Uh, one is an agricultural technical institute campus, and then four of them are branch or regional campuses, as we call them, or small campuses. And there, over 50% of all incoming freshmen are Pell Grant eligible. So First of all, hats off to Ohio State for having a side door to the, to, to the American dream and to the campus in, in Columbus because you can get there from there. In fact, Ohio State doesn't even call it transferring, they call it campus change. With a 2.0 GPA and 30 credit hours, you can change your campus to Columbus where you can get the same degree that everyone, everyone else can. Saying that, though, one of the problems has been, and I think this is not just true of Ohio State, um, that, that these branch and regional campuses are vastly underfunded. They're tubs on their own bottom. That's what one of my bosses called it when um, I was the dean there. And that makes it very difficult to actually serve populations that oftentimes have greater needs. And it makes it then more difficult to be relevant uh, and, and, and also to respond to community needs. Mansfield was a great example. Mansfield in 1954 was the seventh largest manufacturing district in America. And by the offshoring that occurred in the 70s and 80s, it, it, it's not even ranked now. Uh, and so it's a shell of a, of a city. And uh, so the question was, how do we bring this back? And so we actually, and it's just happening now, this is two years after I stepped down, we will finally have our first non-calculus-based engineering degree that will be put onto the Mansfield campus in response to community needs. Uh, that took nine years to, to make that happen. That's way too long. That's not, that's not moving at the speed of business. And so I think to your last point then about uh, 
kind of getting into the digital age and using distance learning. That's a model that we've actually seen work successfully in both business and social work. And there's no reason why it can't be just as effective with all of the other programs that we have if there was a will to do that. Uh, I would like to add that it's very impressive that you have a non-calculus-based engineering degree. I have many friends who didn't actually get through engineering because of the difficulty of Ohio State's calculus program. Yep. Thank you. So we have two minutes left. So if anybody has a really quick question, uh, we'll conclude on that. A quick question for Josh Hall. I'm really interested in the research you've done into accreditation. Is it not the case that there were some perfectly respectable colleges and universities that just didn't think the value proposition of accreditation was worth it until federal money became the issue for them? I'm sure. I don't, I don't know that uh, history well enough to, to give you uh, examples. I'm sure there are plenty uh, of those, just given the, the 2,000 plus institutions of higher education there are in the United States. Um, but I can't answer specifically. Thank you. All right. And with that, we're going to take a 10-minute break. Uh, so we'll have water and coffee available in the Winter Garden, which is near the entrance of Cato. So if you want to do that, uh, we'll come back in here at 1055 uh, for our next panel. So um, thank you. Please give our panelists a round of applause. <laughs>